Almost 50,000 migrants have arrived in New York since last spring, stretching city resources to their limit and leaving thousands in emergency shelters. So what has this experience been like for asylum seekers as they rebuild their lives? Tonight, two journalists covering this evolving crisis share what migrants are saying as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The massive influx of nearly 50,000 asylum seekers is testing New York's ability to humanely respond to a crisis Mayor Adams says has stretched the city to its limit. Now, one of the major flashpoints unfolded this month when police cleared an encampment of migrant men outside the Watson Hotel in Manhattan. The group had refused to move to a migrant shelter at the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal in Red Hook amid reports of too many people living squeezed together. The nonprofit immigration news site, Documented, recently traveled to Brooklyn and other shelters to see what migrants had to say about the conditions and the challenges of trying to rebuild their lives in New York. So joining us tonight to discuss their reporting and the larger crisis in New York is Fisayo Okare, Documented's newsletter writer. Fisayo, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I'd also like to welcome Documented's engagement journalist, Ramo Ojeda. Ramo, welcome to the show as well. Thank you, Jenna. Looking forward to the conversation. So, Fisayo, I was wondering if you could take us a little bit deeper into the story that I sort of mentioned in the lead. And of course, that is about uh, the asylum seekers, the men who were removed from the sidewalk outside of the Watson Hotel. Yes, um, the men were removed by city officials from outside of the Watson Hotel. Um, they had stayed there because the day before, um, some migrants had gone to the new center that the city launched at the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal in Red Hook. And when they returned, they complained that conditions were much worse than what they had encountered at the hotel while living there. At the Watson Hotel, um, two Typically two men are allocated to a room and private bath, but at the center in Red Hook, it's just a general sleeping area with several cots for migrants to sleep in. And the bathrooms are outside of the center. So when they need to take a shower, they have to leave the, the center to take a shower. And so when some of these migrants had returned, I, I mean, they went with the buses that the city organized or arranged for them to go to the center in and then they returned to the hotel and told some of their pairs and so from what some of their pairs had they were hesitant to go to the center in red hook however when my colleague and i went to red hook 
to speak to the migrants who had gone there. And at this point, most of the migrants had been moved there overnight by the city. Um, mm -hmm. They said that conditions there were actually not as bad as they had heard. They were very grateful for the resources that the city had provided them. Um, in the words of one of them, he said they were actually privileged that the city was offering them resources while they tried to bounce back from the situation that they are in. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that we were hearing uh, prior to this was that it was also not just the conditions of uh, the terminal in Red Hook, but also just the location. And can you tell us a little bit about why going all the way out to Red Hook instead of being in Manhattan, people were concerned about being that far away, I guess, from perhaps uh, New York City's center? Yeah, people were, the, the migrants and asylum seekers were concerned about being far away in a remote location like as the Brooklyn cruise terminal is in because they're going to be or they are in accessing the subway is more difficult compared to when they were at the Watson Hotel. The subways were nearby at the center in Red Hook. Mm -hmm. They have to walk further away before getting to the subway station there. Also, um, some of them have, I mean, some of them in New York right now, most of them are looking for work so they can sustain themselves. And so the commute from the center to where they walk is where they work is actually more challenging compared to where they were before at the Watson Hotel. However, the city has provided free ferries for them from the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal. There are also buses that the city has organized for them to be able to um, transport themselves easily to and from their from their work or to the to, to Manhattan. So then, uh, Rama, I want to ask you: um, Do you know if how this is affecting people's view, at least, of having gone through what I'm sure is a very arduous journey just to get to New York? That what their opinion is of the city now being here and you know being removed, having to live on the streets. Um, and trying to get around a city that isn't always that easily navigatable. Yeah, one of the things that gets lost in the conversation is that this, you know, the migrants, they're seeking a community, right? So when we have this constant shift, you know, from shelter to temporary shelter, they are losing in itself the community that they're getting used to, you know. For example, um, we have talked, we have spoken with a lot of families that were at the Assassin shelter in, in the Bronx. And while they were there for three months, they had already found a job, right? And all of a sudden they were moved to Brooklyn and now they had to start all over again. So trying to adjust after having to adjust the, after the trip in itself tends to impact them in many different ways, right? One of them, as Fisayo mentioned, is the fact that they had to look for jobs. And if they had already found a gig, most likely they will have to start all over again. And then, you know, you have to talk about the mental health aspect of it. Having the constant uh, struggle to find new resources, to find new people to talk to, to find help in the, in the new shelter, it impacts them. And we have seen a lot of, not a lot, but we have seen, you know, a number of people who have gone to the hospitals and have been diagnosed with anxiety, with depression, and they have been having to return and seek, you know, psychologists who can hopefully understand, you know, their culture and where they're coming from and help them work towards, you know, uh, finding a solution to the struggles that they're facing and, and will continue to face in the upcoming months.
Well, have you found if there are any uh, organizations um, of some sort in the city that have been stepping up and at least trying to help uh, some of these asylum seekers and migrants try to make this adjustment? There have been so many organizations from the get-go, you know, Mixteca in Brooklyn, for example, they have been helping migrants and they have been sort of uh, implementing these new mental health counseling sessions, right, where people can go, they can share their struggles, but they can also sort of, you know, find people to communicate with. Uh, one of the things that the shelters tends to lack is, you know, personnel that speaks Spanish, right? And even though they have these translation services, it can... It is not the same as having someone in front of you that you can talk to and explain exactly what's going on. Um, so the organizations, they have been sort of helping them out and connecting, you know, filling the gap between the city resources that exist, but that asylum seekers may not know or may not be aware of because of the lack of, uh, you know, Spanish services and the shelters that they're in. Well, Fisaya, one of the other things that I'm wondering is, uh, how the city or at least uh, the city leadership, specifically Mayor Adams, has evolved on this issue, because while on the campaign trail, he was very much a defender of immigrant rights. But that seems to have evolved, I guess, is the word I can think of. Yes, since um, especially since the arrival of more asylum seekers and migrants um, during the summer, the mayor has his position about it has been changing. He's been, he's been in support of it and has been trying to lead his administration to provide as much resources as they can. But also he has been, he has said over and again that the city, the city is overwhelmed and coupled with the fact that other governors from other cities started busting some of the migrants from their own states to New York City because of the fact that it's a sanctuary city. Um, it's, it has, further made the city administration to be overwhelmed about it. And so recently we've heard, you know, the mayor saying things like the right to shelter law has to be reviewed or has to be um, gone over again by the, by, mm -hmm. the administra by the administration. He did mention once that the, the they are not even quite sure if the law should apply to, to asylum seekers as well, but most advocates and other city administration and officials as well have been pushing back on it because they believe that he cannot decide to change the law or change his views about it just because the city administration is now overwhelmed by their, their, their intake of asylum seekers in the city. Has the city, in your opinion, has it uh, made any progress with perhaps battling misinformation, um, specifically about uh, this one location where they're moving migrants to? I know that the mayor even spent the night there to sort of prove a point. Yes, the city has been trying to battle misinformation about it. Even the commissioner of the mayor's office of immigrant affairs has been in the media as well recently talking about it and talking about how they are trying as much as possible to just provide a safe space for the migrants to stay. Um, and also there have been other city officials, including city council members and a New York state senator as well, who have gone there to tour the place by themselves. And after touring the place, because the press wasn't allowed to actually go in, when my colleague and I went there, we encountered migrants when they were on their way to work, um, while leaving the center on their way to work. But 
city officials who have been there, they've spoken about the conditions there. And while they've underscored the fact that it's not the most ideal situation, they've also said that it's it's an arrangement that worked for the migrants, especially now in this situation that they are in while trying to seek asylum and also get their work authorization so that they can begin working and also be able to sustain themselves. Well, Rama, uh, I'm wondering because earlier you did mention uh, the crisis of mental health that this is also causing for, uh, you know, asylum men and um, asylum God migrant men and asylum seeker men. But we also know it's not just men who are involved. There's also children. And do you know if this is having a similar impact on uh, children who are coming to the city? Uh, one of the things that we noticed when we were talking, you know, to children and their families is that the sense of belonging, you know, and just having to adjust to the school system and having to find new friends that can help them sort of navigate the school system in itself does take a toll. But compared to the trip, you know, the, the journey that they made through the Darien Gap, for example, right, they tend to compare those two and in a way find a find a a way to say that, okay, you know, I've been through something worse and therefore I can, you know, deal with it. Of course, the city has also like allocated, you know, funds for, to help, you know, children and also families in general with mental health services. Um, and I think, you know, it's going to be a long process before, you know, kids can actually adjust to the, to the school system and also just learn the language, right? Uh, hopefully more funds are, alloca are allocated for after school programs so that people can learn English faster. Um, but yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a long process, and we will have to keep reporting on it to see what the long term effects of the of this adjusting period is. Well, Romulo, we literally only have about ten seconds left, but also wondering: Do any of these asylum seekers and migrants do they have family ties in the city, or are they more here, kind of on their own? A lot of the families that we have spoken to, they are here on their own, which complicates, you know, the process of navigating New York City. Uh, and they rely on local organizations as well as, you know, the satellite locations that the city is sort of working with other nonprofits, right, to get like the resources. Uh, but most of them are alone. Most of them are also from Venezuela, which they did not have, you know, any family members when they got here, which complicates the things because they have to start from zero and just basically learn as they go. All right. Well, I want to thank both of my guests, uh, Fisayo Okare and Ramo Ojeda, both from Documented. Thank you both so much for your reporting and for joining us on tonight on Metro Focus. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Absolutely. So white Americans or black Americans, what everybody wants is an equal chance to have a piece of the action. Homeownership to me, it means freedom. It is the backbone of America. For black Americans, it doesn't work that way. I didn't really understand how segregated the city was. It's also now trapped poor white people. Those struggles are shared struggles. The last generation standing is the one that's going to have to pick up the bill. What you just saw was a preview of Owned, A Tale of Two Americas, an independent lens documentary airing on PBS. The film is an entertaining yet thought-provoking look at the history of housing policy in America. From the suburban developments of Levittown, where Blacks were explicitly forbidden from owning homes, to the redlining policies in cities like Baltimore and in New York.
The film explores the many ways in which housing policy has been manipulated over the years to discriminate against people of color. The film also takes a critical look at the boom and bust cycle of the real estate industry, a cycle that has left many white Americans also trapped in decaying communities. So joining me now to tell us about his film and as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America is the director of Owned, A Tale of Two Americas, Giorgio Angelini. Giorgio, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you for having me. All right. So first off, I guess the general question would be is sort of how did a film like this come together for you? And did you have an intended audience when you began putting this together? Yeah. So I was in graduate school for architecture at Rice University in Houston during the kind of wake of the housing crisis. And at that point, like 2011, 2012, we were talking about uh, being in somewhat of a recovery. And it struck me as a kind of, I don't know, curious term terminology because I kept on asking myself, well, you know, what are we actually recovering? What are we actually promoting as a system? And is it actually producing the things that we want it to? And so I, I had read this article in Bloomberg about this abandoned McMansion development site in Inland Empire, California, which is an area of Southern California, the desert that you wouldn't normally visit unless you live there, to be quite honest, nothing against the, the area. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a exurb, you know, uh, 5,000 square miles of centerless sprawl as they call it. And so the, the writing really captivated me, but weirdly there were no images attached to it. So I, I applied for a grant to go photograph this development site. And when I, when I got there, I was really struck by a condition I wasn't prepared to really see, which was this commodity limbo where you had these, uh, half-built McMansions that had been abandoned, like a ghost town, sitting next to abandoned orange groves. And mm-hmm. so there was this really palpable sense of alienation that you just felt like an inhuman quality that at some point, some quant out there thought that like, oh, we could make this much more money on this parcel of land by producing air-conditioned square feet versus oranges. And then the system just kind of carpeted the landscape with homes. and. Mm-hmm that's when I felt like there's, there's a bigger story here than just taking photographs of this, of these spaces. Of course, of course. Now the film is titled owned a tale of two Americas. And while we're currently in this space of perhaps reassessing some of the historical decisions that were made, uh, what did you learn about the way America actually consciously and intentionally manipulated uh, how's not only housing uh, developments and where people could live, but the way that the real estate market would work and how that shaped the America that we're in today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, making a documentary film is as much an education for the filmmaker as it is for the intended audience. Um, and for me, that was definitely no no different. I, I started the project really as a, a kind of maybe more navel gazy poetic exploration of just the concept of what it meant to commodify square footage. But then as it happens, especially with underfunded documentaries that take a long time to make is that history happens around you and you have to respond to it. And so events in places like Michael Brown's murder in, in Ferguson and Freddie Gray uprising in Baltimore made me more aware that like, I couldn't talk about a critique of suburbia without talking about the other side of it, because of course uh, one came at the expense of the other, right? We built the suburbs explicitly at the expense of investing in, uh, in inner city America. And 
I think what we're contending with today is really the ramifications of those decisions and specifically the decisions to not explicitly ameliorate or fix the problems that we set into motion decades ago. Yeah, the film definitely gives you a deep sense of nothing in what you see around you is an accident. Um, but I'm wondering, in your uh, unraveling, what were some of the, I guess, biggest things that stood out to you in the decisions that were made? Mm. Well, I mean, I think people are surprised to know just how explicitly the the segregation was in the system, right? People, you have a situation where there's a huge demand for housing coming out of World War II, and the government creates a series of ambitious proposals to invigorate both the economy, which at that point people forget, like we were, we thought we were going to go back into a Great Depression, right? So they had to pump up the economy in a way to prop it up. And they did that through housing. And they said, we're going to make this kind of grand bargain with the American citizen that we're going to give you access to basically free loans and you're going to work a 30-year job that's matched with a 30-year mortgage. And this is how we're going to build the American middle class. And to some extent, it really, really works, but also only for a particular group of people. I mean, in, in Levittown, in the leases, lease to own contracts in Levittown, they explicitly excluded uh, non-whites from, from living there, specifically for Caucasians, as it's written in the laws. And in my film, you know, we, we compare Levittown to a development in Southern California that was developed by a modernist architect named Gregory Ayne, who was building ostensibly a very similar kind of development, similar size homes, similar construction, but with a different ambition. He wanted to have an integrated neighborhood in the same year, 1947. And the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, told him that basically, like, we're not going to underwrite your loans. We're not going to insure those loans if you can't commit to having a desegregated neighborhood. And much to his credit, uh, and unfortunately, much to the lack of success of that development, he said, no, it's more important for me to have an integrated neighborhood. And so he had to find financing privately. And uh, as a result, the development could only grow so big. But it just shows you just how explicit the, the um, how pernicious the the mentality was that like black families moving into white neighborhoods would somehow bring down property values, which, okay. of course, so is just, not true. I just want to make sure um, that you said what you intended to say was that um, at the time for this development in California, the federal government said, uh, we're not going to insure these loans unless it's a segregated uh, development, not a desegregated. Yes. One. Sorry. Okay. All right. I just yes, wanted sorry. To yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. so clear. All right. So then with all of that, that you sort of discover, and you talked about the importance that the federal government even understood of uh, building this economy and using real estate to do it. How does that just lean right into what became um, what I'm sure history will look back as is this infamous housing crisis that collapsed around 2008? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the film is really a, a kind of study on our belief systems and what we believe to be the importance and role that home ownership plays in a society. And increasingly so since the advent of the 30-year mortgage and uh, today like shows like uh, flip or flop, we, we, we consider a home now more than anything else a, uh, a wealth accumulator. It is like the place where you build your wealth as a family. And as such, it ends up teasing out a lot of the worst aspects in us, right? On the financial side, um, it exposes people to a very pernicious uh, um, 
kind of exploitative practice, lending practice, right? Where people are always trying to prey on you to extract uh, that wealth out of you, either through uh, no income, uh, no asset loans, that really is what created the 2008 housing crisis in many ways, or um, other kind of schemes. And then on the on the other side, you if you think that the home is there to increase value and its only purpose is there to make you more wealthy, and you are also a generally, you know, racist person, and you believe quite erroneously that that people of color moving into your neighborhood is going to bring your property value down, then you're going to do everything you can to maintain a white hegemony in your neighborhoods to prevent black families and brown families from moving in there because you see it as a threat to your wealth accumulation. So, and I mean, there's so much that this film addresses and does quite well and in a sometimes surprisingly entertaining way, but I do want to ask, how then does, because uh, the film sort of touches on um, the reinterest in urban areas from suburban areas, because we've seen a large move of people who want to live right. in, you know, a walkable urban neighborhood or whatever, but then that sort of recreates the whole process all over again, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we followed um, a retired police officer in Levittown named Jimmy, who interestingly grew up uh Right after the World War, after World War II ended, he he was living in inner city New York in an area that we now consider to be historically black, Bedsty, but which was actually quite integrated back then. And because of the GI Bill and FHA uh, policies, his family was able to move out to Levittown. But in a kind of sad irony, as an adult, he comes back to those very same neighborhoods, which are now 20 years later, having been divested from and, and falling into disrepair, he comes back as a police officer to police this community that used to be his own. And so in the film, he goes back to the block where he used to live, where he, the, the affordable housing complex where he used to live that has now been uh, demolished and is just a vacant lot. And there's a really um, touching moment where he, he kind of meditates on the idea of like who, where those families went, right? And of course, around him is just the advent of all this rapid development and gentrification. And he's, he's quite honestly kind of contending with this, with this cognitive dissonance that like, in some ways, gentrification is good because it's, it's fixing up the streets, it's fixing up the infrastructures, but it's also kind of inherently exclusive, right? And it doesn't account for pain that it's caused to the residents that had to move out. So um, yeah, in that sense, I think it's it captures a feeling that a lot of us in America are dealing with a kind of sense of helplessness, a recognition that maybe you weren't the cause of all these problems, but you are also the beneficiary in some way. And what you do with that guilt, I think, is the central dilemma that America is facing right now. Of course. Well, the film is owned a tale of two americas we were joined by giorgio angelini uh this was part of of course our chasing the dream initiative on poverty justice and economic opportunity giorgio thank you so much for joining us and also thank you for this film this was really it was a entertaining and yet very eye-opening watch thanks for tuning into metro focus take our award-winning program wherever you go with metro focus the podcast Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at WLIW.org radio and on the NPR One app.